So Matthew 12, verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out (coughs) demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder the house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Thanks be to God for his words. Heavenly Father, we bow in your holy and most mighty presence. Our prayer is that your word might be our rule, that your spirit, that he and he alone might be our teacher, and that your honour and your glory alone might be our supreme concern for Jesus' sake. Amen. So as I said, today we come to the last sermon in our series called Experiencing the Spirit, where we focus on the person and work of God, the Holy Spirit. And we have learned that we all need to be born again, and that the Holy Spirit alone is the giver of this new spiritual life that we all desperately need. It is through him that we are born Again, or born from above. You must be born again, says Jesus. All genuine Christians are born again or born from above. We've also learned that the normal Christian experience is that of an ongoing battle between our sinful flesh and the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and what he wants for each and every one of us. Each day, the Christian person has to consciously decide to look to the Spirit's resources to allow him to set your direction in life and for him to set the pace of your life. And this will be a constant struggle that will only end when you and I stand in glory gazing upon the face of the Lord Jesus. At week three, we learnt, among other things, that as Christians, we can have confidence because the Holy Spirit is actively working in our world, convicting people about who Jesus is, and that they are not right with God, 
and that Satan has been defeated. And so he persuades people to jump ship, lest on judgment day they find themselves on the wrong side of history and therefore on the wrong side of God's holy wrath. We've learned that the Spirit is like another Jesus, and therefore he is divine, just like the Father and just like the Son. So even if we could travel back to the first century and to Israel and sit and listen to Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount, or no matter how many trips we take to the Holy Land, such experiences, as good as they might B, make you no better off than you are right now with the Bible in your hand and the Holy Spirit living in your heart. Without the indwelling presence of the Spirit, no one, whether in the first or the 21st century, would or could ever understand who Jesus is and the significance of his death and resurrection. Absolutely no one. Think of the greatest Bible teacher that you know of, the Kellers of this world, the Carsons. None of these men would know anything about Jesus but for the work of God the Holy Spirit in their heart and life. And yet, we have also learned in this series that the whole purpose of the Father sending the Son, Jesus, is because he wants an intimate relationship with you. He wants to adopt you into his family as a son and heir alongside Jesus himself. How incredible is that? Yet, it is only possible through the power of God the Holy Spirit. On week five, we learned that the Holy Spirit enables us to truly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and mean it. As he baptizes or incorporates us into the church of Jesus Christ, making each one of us part of the corporate people of God. He then deliberately distributes different gifts to different Christians to help unite us together in building up this very same church. So it's important to note in the words of one preacher and writer, these words. The measure of the greatness of any particular gift is neither its degree of impressiveness nor its apparent miraculous nature, but its usefulness to the church. Let me say that again. The measure of the greatness of any particular gift is neither its degree of impressiveness nor its apparent miraculous nature, but its usefulness to the church. So whether you do the admin here at Gracious Broccoli, set up for children's church, teach in a fellowship group, or preach for sermons, Your goal or motivation should be to be useful to Jesus and to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Finally, because the Holy Spirit is a person and not a force or a thing, not an it, we learned last week that that we can cause him pain, sorrow, 
or sadness by being unholy in our relationships with other people, especially other Christians. Christ-likeness, which is just another way of talking about the fruit of the Spirit, is seen most clearly in a Christian through their sensitivity to other people, or in appreciating how rash, thoughtless words, unkind jibes, sarcasm, hostile reactions, cold snubs, cynicism hurt other people. Yet all too often this sort of thing is not uncommon in Christian circles. And so we end up hurting one another a great deal by the things we say and by the emails we send. And because we lack self-control and are naturally self-centered. Every time our inner motivation is, I'll show her, or I'll give him a piece of my mind, we need to be careful. Because such thinking is not the mind of Christ. And such conduct is so unlike the Lord Jesus Christ. We lastly discovered that uh, we can quench the Holy Spirit, that is, put out his fire in our hearts or extinguish his light in our lives in the way we both listen to and respond to his word in Holy Scriptures. Now, it's a bit long, but I want to quote it in full because it's important. So in summary, listen uh, to how David Jackman, a great Bible teacher and writer, puts his finger on the issue uh, in the following quote. Are you a Christian? Then the Holy Spirit is within you. He wants to use our lives in our generation as witnesses to the reality of the gospel, which we have believed. Many of us know we lack power, but it is not because of any shortage in God's supply. Rather, it is because we quench or grieve the Holy Spirit. We refuse to allow him to control certain areas of our lives. If we have no heart for mission, it must be because we are not appropriating the gift, the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit. We need to be honest about our own spirituality before God. Is there developing in us a conspicuous and recognizable likeness to Jesus? God is not interested in providing us with a fragrant bubble bath of spiritual ecstasy. But in our daily growing in grace, our daily concern for lost people, and our daily readiness and availability to be a witness for Christ. There's a lot to take in there, but David Jackman puts his finger on the pulse of the issue. Now, it, it's obviously sad when the true mark of the Spirit's work is not ever in evidence in the life of someone professing to be a Christian. So we need to help one another here at Gracious Broccoli not to be grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit, since we all have our struggles here, don't we? Whether we are the admin person or the preacher. And yes, as indicated last week, there is a sin that is even worse than grieving or quenching the Spirit. So look with me at Matthew 12 and verses 31 and 32. As we look at this old idea of the unpardonable or the unforgivable sin. 
And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. These are the very words of Jesus Christ himself. And according to his words, every kind of sin will be forgiven. Idolatry, murder, abortion, genocide, rape, racism, you name it. You can even slander the Son of Man. Now this is Jesus' other way of referring to himself. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, Jesus is depicted as this incredibly powerful looking man who is led into the very presence of Almighty God himself. He is given sovereign power and people from all nations worship him. Yet you can even blaspheme him or speak a word against this son of man, says Jesus, and yet still find forgiveness. You can still know what it means to be accepted by God. But, says Jesus, verse 31, blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Verse 32, anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age still to come. So blaspheming the Holy Spirit is worse than grieving or quenching him in the sense that it, that is blaspheming the Spirit, whether in this age or the one to come, can never, ever, ever be forgiven. Grieving and or quenching the Spirit are sins that can be committed by Christians. And I hope you are a little clearer on how you can avoid resisting God's spirit in these two ways from last week as a result. Now, sometimes the combined effect of the word of God and the spirit of God is to disturb those who are too comfortable, while at the same time comforting those who are disturbed for whatever reason. Uh, Perhaps you are a Christian here today, who is or has been disturbed at the thought that you might have committed this so-called unforgivable sin. If that is the case, then I hope you will take great comfort in what I'm about to say in the next few moments. If you are not a Christian here today, then you may find what I'm going to say a little disturbing and perhaps even uncomfortable. But before we get to that, a little context. The number of Old Testament quotes in Matthew's Gospel suggests that it was initially written to a mainly Jewish congregation, a Jewish audience. So Matthew organizes what he wants to say around five major teaching blocks or sections. Reminiscent, perhaps, of the five books of Moses in the Old Testament. And Matthew could be suggesting that Jesus is the new and better Moses, the rabbi or the teacher par excellence. And his most famous teaching being the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7. 
Now, on either side of these five main teaching blocks, you have six narrative sections, that is, historical records or accounts of the things Jesus did. Now, chapter 10 is the next main teaching block in Matthew's Gospel, after the Sermon on the Mount. And it's all about mission. And so Jesus sends out his 12 disciples to proclaim the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done for us by dying in our place on the cross so we can know forgiveness and acceptance with God. The next major teaching block is chapter 13, which contains several parables, again, all about God's kingdom and how you can enter into it. Our passage today falls between these two main teaching blocks, chapter 10 and chapter 13. Chapter 11 deals with a growing uncertainty or skepticism about Jesus. Chapter 12 takes things up a notch as it tackles a growing hostility towards Jesus. So in verse 10 of chapter 12, look at it with me. We find some people looking to bring charges against Jesus. They want him out of the way. And by the time we get to verses 14 and 15 of that chapter, a bit further down, we discover that the leading religious group of the time, known as the Pharisees, are plotting to murder, to kill Jesus. And so Jesus is forced to withdraw. Yet... This does not stop the crowds pursuing Jesus and bringing to him all who are sick and or demon-possessed. Which brings us to the story, the narrative surrounding this unforgivable sin. And the context of Jesus' words in verses 31 and 32 in regard to this sin that can never, ever be forgiven, is clearly spelt out for us in verses 22 and 23 of Matthew 12. Look at these verses with me, because they're very important. Verse 22. Then they brought him, that is Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? The people speculated whether Jesus was indeed God's long-promised king or Messiah. Could he be the one? You see, the Old Testament promised that when this anointed king, this son of David, turns up, well, the blind would see. The lame will walk. The deaf will suddenly begin to hear again. But the Pharisees, who belong to this religious sect, and who would have known their Old Testament inside out, conclude that Jesus was only able to heal this man by using the power of Satan. Verse 24. Look at verse 24. That's their conclusion. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow, Jesus, drives out demons. So in verses 25 to 27, Jesus counters their arguments by saying, that is completely ridiculous. Why would Satan drive out his own demon? 
that would be totally counterproductive. It would be like a kingdom, a city, or a family divided against itself. Ultimately, any such kingdom, city, or family will destroy itself from the inside out. In other words, if I am using Satan's power to drive out his own demon, then in effect, Satan is divided against himself. He's fighting against himself, which is absurd and makes absolutely no sense. So then, in verses 28 to 30, Jesus points out what was actually happening in verse 22. Look at verse 28 with me. But, here's what's really happening. If it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can any, anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possession unless... He first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. No, says Jesus. What was actually happening was that when I healed that blind and lame demon-possessed man in verse 22, it was through the power of the Spirit of God. So you were witnessing the coming of the kingdom of God in the power of God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God was actually working through me in an unmistakable and undeniable way. You saw it. I am, says Jesus in effect, the stronger man. Not the strong man, the stronger man. The Holy Spirit gives me the power to bind Satan, the strong man, not the stronger man, the strong man of verse 29, in order that I, Jesus, the stronger man, can plunder his kingdom. That is, so that I can release people like that blind and mute man from his bondage to Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. Which brings us to our verses, verses 31 and 32. But brothers and sisters, we need to pause and praise God for a moment. Because we very easily skip over verse 31. You see, according to Jesus in verse 31, every kind of sin and blasphemy you and I have ever committed can and will be forgiven. Hallelujah. Grieving the Spirit is forgivable. Quenching the Holy Spirit is forgivable. Even slandering Jesus Christ himself is forgivable. All kinds of sexual immorality, premarital, extramarital, homosexual sex, paedophilia, bestiality, all are forgivable. Idolatry, hatred, discord, jealousy... If you have an anger management problem, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, each and every one forgivable. Abusers of drugs, alcohol, those addicted to gambling, you name it. All guilty of such things can and will be forgiven. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? That's glorious news. 
friends, people need to hear this. There's virtually nothing that God isn't willing to forgive and forget and throw away into the closet. The reach of God the Holy Spirit is such that he's able to bring new life to all sorts of people regardless of how heinous, how entrenched or willful their rebellion is or has been. And no matter how low they have sunk morally. But nothing can be done for the person who blasphemes or slanders this same spirit. So for God's sake, what is this unforgivable or eternal sin against God the Holy Spirit? Well, clearly, it cannot simply be rejecting the truth about Jesus. Many of us have been guilty of that at some point in our lives, me included. When I was a teenager, I was given a number of opportunities to respond to the good news about Jesus. Clearly, that did not put me or many of us beyond the Spirit's reach. No. To blaspheme or speak against the Holy Spirit here means something like this. That you have seen, perhaps even savoured, something of the reality of Jesus' saving power through the person and work of the Holy Spirit himself. You have seen and perhaps even tasted something of the power of the coming of the kingdom of God. Verse 28. Yet, rather than humbly accepting or embracing it, instead, you turn your back on it and label it as evil. You react quite violently against it and therefore want nothing to do with it. Sadly, to their eternal peril and shame, that is what these very religious Pharisees were doing in Matthew chapter 12. They were clearly seeing people healed or released from Satan's kingdom by the power of God the Holy Spirit, like the man in verse 22, but instead of recognizing and acknowledging this to be the coming of the kingdom of God in the power of God the Holy Spirit himself, verse 28, they ascribe it instead to the prince of demons. Can you see that? It's very serious. To Beelzebub. And of course that means they then don't have to face up to the truth of who Jesus is and what his coming means for them personally. Having already rejected him as evil. Just ponder that for a moment. Before Isaiah was commissioned by the Lord to be a prophet in Isaiah chapter 6. In chapters 1 to 5 of the book that bears his name, Isaiah paints for us a picture of the situation into which he was called upon to be God's mouthpiece, God's prophet. It was seen that uh, God's people had abandoned him. So there was injustice, corruption, bloodshed, Superstition, divination, pride, poor leadership, and so on and so on among God's people during Isaiah's time. 
And as we get to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, flip back to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, an important verse for you to, it's on page 691. Please turn there, all of you, turn there to Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20, page 691. Listen to what Isaiah writes about the people, or some of the people of his generation. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20. Isaiah writes this. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put light, darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. You see that? That is what happens when people reject or abandon the ways of God. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees were calling the Holy Spirit the unholy spirit. They were calling the work of God the work of the devil. They were calling good evil, and by implication, evil good. Now, before we dismiss these ancient people as primitive, unevolved, or uncultured. It's worth noting that things are no better in the 21st century. Truths that were once self-evidently true and good are today being dismissed as patently untrue and intolerable even. And those who hold these old-fashioned ideas are even demonized. Think gender. Think traditional marriage. You don't believe there are only two genders, do you? You don't believe that marriage can only be between a man and a woman, do you? Really? Or for example, we exploit the poor and call it the national lottery. We reward laziness and call it welfare. We kill the unborn and call it choice. We neglect to discipline our children and call it building their self-esteem. We have people who abuse power and yet we call them our political leaders. We covet our neighbor's possessions and call it being aspirational or ambition. Can you see how subtle it can be? We take a bad thing and give it a good label and hey presto it becomes acceptable to all and sundry. So evil becomes good and by implication good becomes evil. Black has become white, white has become black. But why is this attitude towards the person and work of the Holy Spirit eternally unforgivable? Well I think the answer is that it is Eternal, not in the sense that it is so bad it can never be forgiven, but rather in the sense that by its very nature you cannot turn from it. You see, the, the Pharisees regarded the Holy Spirit actively working in and through Jesus as self-evidently evil. How then can they embrace the Holy Spirit and the one he is pointing them to, namely Jesus? How can the Spirit soften their hearts 
when they believe the very act of him doing so is in itself evil? How will they repent when the very person who can bring about their repentance is rejected as an evil influence? Well, of course, the answer is that the very nature of their objection is such that they will not and cannot repent or turn from their wrong attitudes and actions. Their inclination will always be to resist the Holy Spirit at every turn, given what they believe about him. I hope you can see that to be in such a place is to be truly lost. To have a completely shattered moral compass. Even more shocking is the fact that the people in this position, according to our passage, are the respectable religious ones. I remember a godly and well-respected South African bishop equating the first century Pharisees of the New Testament with 21st century evangelical Christians. I want to close this series on the Holy Spirit by making two points by way of application from our passage today. First, I hope you can see that if you are a committed follower of Jesus Christ, if you have publicly repented towards God and put your faith in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then by definition you cannot be guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you've already let him in. He now lives in your heart. He already indwells you and is producing his fruit in keeping with repentance within you. So be encouraged. Praise the Lord. And yet, and yet understand that the human heart is wicked, complex and mysterious. And so the exhortation of the New Testament is this. Today, if you hear the Holy Spirit's voice, be careful not to harden your hearts like God's people did back in the Old Testament. See to it, my brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Rather, encourage each other daily, as long as it's called today, such that none of us here at Gracious Broccoli may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Put another way, understand this. You have only truly come to share in the blessings of Christ if, indeed, you hold your original conviction firmly to the very end. I remember being quite shocked by the story of a Christian missionary to Muslims connected with a church I was involved with. She apparently renounced her Christian faith and became a committed Muslim. It seems to me the New Testament suggests that there is no sacrifice for sins left for such a person because they have treated as an unholy thing the precious and the holy blood of Jesus that once appeared to set them apart. Now these are mysterious and difficult things, brothers and sisters. I don't say they're not. But might I suggest that you don't need to fully understand them in order to fully heed the exhortation and, dare I say, the warnings contained in the New Testament. Second, uh, maybe you're not a Christian here today. Uh, perhaps you have been around Christian things for much of your life. Maybe you're relatively new to Christian things. Whatever the case, you've seen people, your friends even, professing faith. You've witnessed a change in them for the better. 
You yourself have been convicted of the truth of the kingdom of God and your own lack of work before the God of the Bible. In other words, the kingdom of God has come upon you, verse 28, and you have tasted something of, the, of its power and goodness. God the Holy Spirit has clearly been at work around and even in you. Now, it's not my place to judge where you will ultimately end up, but according to our passage, you need to be careful. Careful of reacting so violently against the truth you've come across, for whatever reason, that you put yourself beyond even the reach of God's supremely powerful Holy Spirit. A point where you become virtually incapable of repenting or turning to God in faith. Why not decide to read the Bible one-to-one -one with someone you know and trust while asking all your questions? I would love to help you with this. There are people here who would love to help you with this. Why not come and chat with someone afterwards? Apparently, uh, in space, uh, uh, approaching a black hole is a bit like approaching a waterfall. Eventually, you reach a point of no return. Uh, astron astronomers or cosmologists uh, call this an event horizon. It is the point where you cannot help but be sucked into that dense area of space that they call a black hole because of its powerful gravitational pull. There is just no going back once you've crossed that line, that event horizon. So it is with anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit of God Almighty. I would therefore urge and encourage you, plead with you to humble yourself and turn to Jesus. Because he will forgive all your sins except the willful rejecting of his work in you and around you by his spirit. Let's bow our heads and have a moment's reflection on what we've heard. First question, if those Pharisees plotting to kill Jesus had repented, would they have been forgiven? Uh, yes. Um, uh, at that particular point in time, the Pharisees were calling good evil. So can you see that if, as long as they keep doing that, they, they, can't, they can't come to Jesus. As long as they keep calling the Holy Spirit and his work and influence evil, they can't, they can't embrace him. So they can't become Christians. As long as that's your attitude, you, you literally cannot become a Christian. Because the Holy Spirit will have no place in your life and your heart. Um, if that changes somehow, then of course you can be saved. But until that changes, it's impossible for someone to become a Christian. I hope you can see that. Uh, the agent by which anyone becomes a Christian is the person of the Holy Spirit. Reject him and you are lost forever. That's why the New Testament encourages us to have a soft heart as we hear God's word. Because who is it that makes God's word real to us? Well, the person of the Holy Spirit. If you renounce Christianity and join another religion, but return, has the sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, been committed? If you renounce Christianity uh, and join another religion, but return, has the sin, the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, been committed? So there, there's a sense in which uh, we all know people who would be professing to be Christians at some point or other, and then drift away, um, and then... Uh, we call it backsliding. If they come back to Jesus, if they're truly Christians, the Bible says they'll come back to Jesus. Um, 
But the New Testament is clear, professing to be a Christian, let's be clear on this, professing to be a Christian and being a Christian are not necessarily the same thing. Let me say that again. Professing to be a Christian and being a Christian are not the same thing. So if someone truly has been born again and they backslide or drift away, the Bible seems to suggest that they will eventually come back. Maybe after they've made lots of mistakes and like the prodigal, they will come back. But um, the thing is that we often don't see people from the beginning to the end of their lives. But I know people who at point A were professing to be a Christian and today they're no longer professing to be a Christian. I don't know whether they'll come back or not. Um, but it, there's a sense in which the New Testament says, don't tie yourself in and not trying to work that out. Just don't be like that. Don't drift away. Don't harden your heart when you hear the voice of the Spirit. Keep going with Jesus. Keep trusting Jesus. Because the New Testament does contain warnings which suggest that you can backslide and show yourself to have never been a Christian in the first place. And I wouldn't want that for any of us here. That's the best way I can answer that question. Are the gifts of the Spirit evidence... Stamps of approval that you are born again. Uh, no, no. Are the gifts of the Spirit evidence that you are born again? The New Testament seems to suggest from 1 Corinthians, it's possible to exercise gifts of the Spirit and be very ungodly. In other words, to not be concerned about edifying those around you. And that seems to be what was happening in Corinth. People were showing off their gifts of tongues and not being in the least bit interested in others being edified by it. So it's, it's, it's possible to have um, the gifts, but not the grace. Okay? So, um, so that's why Paul emphasizes love. If gifts aren't being exercised lovingly, read the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 13. If gifts aren't being exercised lovingly, then they're a waste of time, says Paul. Um, so it's possible to be really gifted. So, so um, at Gracious Brooklyn, you may be incredibly gifted, and the temptation of the leadership will be to put you in a position of leadership. But if you have no grace, no fruit of the Spirit, the Bible would say that you shouldn't be involved in leadership or doing anything up front. Because the criterion for leaders in the church is not giftedness, but character. 1 Timothy, Titus says, your character is more important than your giftedness. So we've got to be very careful that we don't elevate giftedness above grace or the fruit of the spirit in someone's life uh, there's one more question um, if blaspheming against the holy spirit is unforgivable will only part of this church be saved well again this comes back to this idea that i said that we mustn't be confused between those who profess to be christian and those being christian equally we mustn't confuse those who turn up with sun on sunday with the true church of jesus christ they're not synonymous not everyone who comes to church is a Christian and will be in the kingdom of heaven on the last day. I hope you realize that. And some of us take that for completely assume that everyone who turns up or walks through these doors is a professing Christian or sorry, is a true Christian. Um, we take a lot for granted sometimes. Uh, we, we shouldn't assume that the people who turn up on Sunday. I remember, I remember hearing John MacArthur, a great preacher and writer, just making the point that he never confuses the people who turn up on Sunday with the true church of Jesus Christ. And he's, he's right. Um, Jesus told a parable which suggests that those who are part of the visible church of Jesus Christ are not the same as those who are part of the invisible church of Christ in heaven. And we need to remember that. Our time's run out. I'm going to hand back to Larry.